0: Chapter four of the Boys Life of Mark Twain This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Boys Life of Mark Twain by Albert Bigelow Payne. Chapter four Education Out of School On their arrival in Hannibal, the Clemens family had moved into a part of what was then the Pavey Hotel. They could not have remained there long, for they moved twice within the next few years, and again in 1844 into a new house which Judge Clemens, as he was generally called, had built on Hill Street, a house still standing, and known to-day as the Mark Twain home. John Clemens had met varying fortunes in Hannibal, neither commerce nor the practice of law had paid. The Office of Justice of the Peace, to which he was elected, returned a fair income— but his business losses finally obliged him to sell Jenny, the slave girl. Somewhat later his business failure was complete. He surrendered everything to his creditors, even to his cow and household furniture, and relied upon his law practice and justice fees. However, he seems to have kept the Tennessee land, possibly because no one thought it worth taking. There had been offers for it earlier, but none that its owner would accept. It appears to have been not even considered by his creditors, though his own faith in it never died. The struggle for a time was very bitter. Orion Clemens, now seventeen, had learned the printer's trade and assisted the family with his wages. Mrs. Clemens took a few boarders. In the midst of this time of hardship little Benjamin Clemens died. He was ten years old. It was the darkest hour. Then conditions slowly improved— there was more law practice and better justice fees by eighteen forty four judge clemens was able to build the house mentioned above a plain cheap house but a shelter and a home sam clemens he was hardly little sam any more was at this time nine years old his boyhood had begun heretofore he had been just a child wild and mischievous often exasperating but still a child a delicate little lad to be worried over, mothered, or spanked and put to bed. Now at nine he had acquired health, with a sturdy ability to look out for himself, as boys in such a community will. Sam, as they now called him, was grown up at nine, and wise for his years. Not that he was old in spirit or manner, he was never that, even to his death, but he had learned a great number of things, many of them of a kind not taught at school." He had learned a good deal of natural history and botany—the habits of plants, insects, and animals. Mark Twain's books bear evidence of this early study. His plants, bugs, and animals never do the wrong things. He was learning a good deal about men, and this was often less pleasant knowledge. Once little Sam—he was still little Sam then—saw an old man shot down on Main Street at noonday. He saw them carry him home lay him on the bed, and spread on his breast an open family Bible which looked as heavy as an anvil. He thought if he could only drag that great burden away the poor old dying man would not breathe so heavily. He saw a young immigrant stabbed with a bowie-knife by a drunken comrade, and two young men try to kill their uncle, one holding him while the other snapped repeatedly an Allen revolver which failed to go off. Then there was the drunken rowdy who proposed to raid the Welshman's house one sultry, threatening evening. He saw that, too. With a boon companion, John Briggs, he followed at a safe distance behind. A widow with her one daughter lived there. They stood in the shadow of the dark porch. The man had paused at the gate to revile them. The boys heard the mother's voice warning the intruder that she had a loaded gun, and would kill him if he stayed where he was, He replied with a tirade, and she warned him that she would count ten, that if he remained a second longer she would fire. She began slowly and counted up to five, the man laughing and jeering. At six he grew silent, but he did not go. She counted on—seven, eight, nine. The boys, watching from the dark roadside, felt their hearts stop. There was a long pause, then the final count followed a second later by a gush of flame. The man dropped, his breath riddled. At the same instant the thunderstorm that had been gathering broke loose. The boys fled wildly, believing that Satan himself had arrived to claim the lost soul. That was a day and locality of violent impulse and sudden action. Happenings such as these were not infrequent in a town like Hannibal. And there were events connected with slavery. Sam once saw a slave struck down and killed with a piece of slag for a trifling offence. He saw an abolitionist attacked by a mob that would have lynched him had not a Methodist minister defended him on a plea that he must be crazy. He did not remember in later years that he had ever seen a slave auction, but he added,
1: "'I am
0: suspicious that it was because the thing was a commonplace spectacle and not an uncommon or impressive one. I do vividly remember seeing a dozen black men and women chained together, lying in a group on the pavement.' waiting shipment to a southern slave market. They had the saddest faces I ever saw. Readers of Mark Twain's books, especially the stories of Huck and Tom, will hardly be surprised to hear of these early happenings that formed so large a portion of the author's early education. Sam, however, did not regard them as education, not at the time. They got into his dreams He set them down as warnings, or punishments, intended to give him a taste for a better life. He felt that it was his conscience that made such things torture him. That was his mother's idea, and he had a high respect for her opinion in such matters. Among other things, he had seen her one day defy a vicious and fierce Corsican—a common terror in the town—who had chased his grown daughter with a heavy rope in his hand, declaring he would wear it out on her. Cautious citizens got out of the way, but Jane Clemens opened her door to the fugitive. Then, instead of rushing in and closing it, spread her arms across it, barring the way. The man raved and threatened her with a rope, but she did not flinch or show any sign of fear. She stood there and shamed and defied him until he slunk off, crestfallen and conquered. Anyone as brave as his mother must have a perfect conscience, Sam thought, and would know how to take care of it. In the darkness he would say his prayers, especially when a thunderstorm was coming, and vow to begin a better life. He detested Sunday-school as much as he did day-school, and once his brother Orion, who was moral and religious, had threatened to drag him there by the collar, but as the thunder got louder, Sam decided that he loved Sunday-school, and would go the next Sunday without being invited. Sam's days were not all disturbed by fierce events. They were mostly filled with pleasanter things. There were picnics sometimes, and ferryboat excursions, and any day one could roam the woods, or fish, alone, or in company. The hills and woods around Hannibal were never disappointing. There was the cave with its marvels. There was Bear Creek, where he had learned to swim. He had seen two playmates drown. Twice, himself, he had been dragged ashore, more dead than alive. Once, by a slave-girl another time by a slave man, Neil Champ, of the Pavey Hotel. But he had persevered and with success. He could swim better than any playmate of his age. It was the river that he cared for most. It was the pathway that led to the great world outside. He would sit by it for hours and dream. He would venture out on it in a quietly borrowed boat, when he was barely strong enough to lift an oar. He learned to know all its moods and phases. More than anything in the world he hungered to make a trip on one of the big, smart steamers that were always passing. You can hardly imagine what it meant, he reflected once, to a boy in those days, shut in as we were, to see those steamboats pass up and down and never take a trip on them. It was at the mature age of nine that he found he could endure this no longer. One day, when the big packet came down and stopped at Hannibal, He slipped aboard and crept under one of the boats on the upper deck. Then the signal bells rang. The steamer backed away and swung into midstream. He was really going at last. He crept from beneath the boat and sat looking out over the water and enjoying the scenery. Then it began to rain—a regular downpour. He crept back under the boat, but his legs were outside, and one of the crew saw him. He was dragged out and at the next stop set ashore. It was the town of Louisiana, where there were Lampton relatives who took him home. Very likely the homecoming was not entirely pleasant, though a lesson, too, in his general education. And always, each summer, there was the farm, where his recreation was no longer mere girl plays and swings with a colored nurse following about, but sports with his older boy cousins who went hunting with the men, for partridges by day and for coons and possums by night. Sometimes the little boy followed the hunters all night long, and returned with them through the sparkling and fragrant morning, fresh, hungry, and triumphant, just in time for breakfast. So it is no wonder that little Sam, at nine, was no longer Little Sam, but plain Sam Clemens, and grown up. If there were doubtful spots in his education—matters related to smoking and strong words It is also no wonder, and experience even in these lines was worth something in a book, like Tom Sawyer. The boy Sam Clemens was not a particularly attractive lad. He was rather undersized, and his head seemed too large for his body. He had a mass of light, sandy hair, which he plastered down to keep from curling. His eyes were keen and blue, and his features rather large. Still he had a fair, delicate complexion when it was not blackened by grime and tan a gentle, winning manner, a smile and a slow way of speaking that made him a favorite with his companions. He did not talk much, and was thought to be rather dull, was certainly so in most of his lessons, but for some reason he never spoke that every playmate in hearing did not stop whatever he was doing to listen. Perhaps it would be a plan for a new game or lark, perhaps it was something droll, Perhaps it was just a casual remark that his peculiar drawl made amusing. His mother always referred to his slow fashion of speech as "'Sammy's long talk.' Her own speech was even more deliberate, though she seemed not to notice it. Sam was more like his mother than the others. His brother, Henry Clemens, three years younger, was as unlike Sam as possible." He did not have the long talk, and was a handsome, obedient little fellow whom the mischievous Sam loved to tease. Henry was to become the Sid of Tom Sawyer, though he was in every way a finer character than Sid. With the death of little Benjamin, Sam and Henry had been drawn much closer together, and in spite of Sam's pranks, loved each other dearly. For the pranks were only occasional, and Sam's love for Henry was constant. He fought for him oftener than with him. Many of the home incidents in the Tom Sawyer book really happened. Sam did clod Henry for getting him into trouble about the colored thread with which he sewed his shirt when he came home from swimming. He did inveigle a lot of boys into whitewashing a fence for him. He did give painkiller to Peter the cat. As for escaping punishment for his misdeeds, as described in the book, this was a daily matter, and his method suited the occasions. For, of course, Tom Sawyer was Sam Clemens himself, almost entirely, as most readers of that book have imagined. However, we must have another chapter for Tom Sawyer and his doings—the real Tom and his real doings with those graceless, lovable associates Joe Harper and Huckleberry Finn— End of chapter 4